There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Lucy Pasha Robinson, and I'm amazed to say this is the penultimate episode of this season of Chronic. Now, as we've discovered over this series, there's lots of different ways to live with chronic illness. But as many of our conversations have highlighted, the way we talk about illness is all too often focused on the body. Today, we're expanding things outward to look at a chronic condition affecting the mind. I'm speaking with Esme Wajin Wang, a New York Times best-selling writer whose work often reflects and examines her own condition, schizoaffective disorder. Esme, thank you so much for joining me. I know it's 7am where you are. But you tell me you're an, you're an early riser, so hopefully this works. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. So you're joining me today as you live with schizoaffective disorder. Can you mm-hmm. tell me the difference between schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder? Sure. So I actually wrote a book called The Collected Schizophrenias um, that came out last year. And when I talk about the schizophrenias, I actually refer to the whole gamut of schizophrenic disorders or psychotic disorders. And so schizoaffective disorder, which is the diagnosis that I have, is kind of a mishmash of schizophrenia and mood disorders. In my case, bipolar disorder or what is known as manic depression. In my case, that is mania and depression. Bipolar disorder for some people is just mania. For some people, it's hypomania and depression, etc. But for me, that is mania and depression. So for people who don't have an awareness of these kind of mental health disorders, Would it be fair to say that psychosis is the sort of top umbrella term and then underneath that you have the schizophrenias and schizoaffective disorders? What is the top level term that covers all of these things? Yeah, so psychosis is probably the thing that distinguishes schizophrenia the most. And psychosis uh, is also something that is very much misunderstood in the common parlance to describe psychosis, I think, is most uh, easily understood with hallucinations and delusions, hallucinations being false senses uh, or false sensory experiences. So seeing things, hearing things, sensing things that aren't there and false delusions or delusions rather being the false beliefs or believing things that aren't true, such as the government is out to get me um, I am Jesus, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So you're 37 now, but you were diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder just a few years ago, back in 2013. How long did mm-hmm. it take for you to get your diagnosis? And what were some of the experiences that led to that? It actually took me around eight years to be diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, even though I had begun to experience psychotic symptoms like I said, eight years prior, I talk about in the book how I feel that my psychiatrist at the time probably 
had a sense that I was likely to have schizoaffective disorder quite a long time before I was actually diagnosed, but I think did not give me that diagnosis for a number of reasons, including that of the fact that it's a really weighty diagnosis and there's quite a lot of stigma attached to it. I think you described a series of psychotic episodes that led up to that. What did those look like for you? I first began to experience hallucinations, so false sensory experiences. The first one that I experienced was in college when I was taking a shower in the dorms and I heard a voice saying, I hate you quite uh, loudly and clearly uh, to the point where I thought that there was something going on with the pipes. I thought maybe I could hear something in one of the bathrooms in the level below me or above me that kind of uh, flourished and became more problematic. I was seeing corpses in cars in the parking lots with maggots coming out of their eyes. I was seeing blood coming out of the walls um, in my room, things like that. And so I was having a lot of these sensory experiences. Later, I would transition to having more delusions. So false beliefs, believing that my loved ones were robots or replaced by doubles. Um, for whatever reason, I went from having more hallucinations to delusions, but I'm not quite sure why. Hmm. And those early hallucinations sound really frightening. Were they always frightening? So the funny thing about my hallucinations is that I found the actual hallucinations themselves to be much less frightening than the experience of having hallucinations that caused me to behave in odd ways, such as ducking or dodging. So I might have a hallucination of something flying at my head and then I would duck because the natural response to something flying at your head is to duck or to jump. And I was so afraid of looking insane that those were, for me, the worst. I could control the way I responded to seeing something really grotesque. Um, I could tell myself that it wasn't real, or I could try to um, acclimate myself as though it were a horror movie, but I couldn't control um, jumping to the side if I saw a big hole opening up in front of me. And that was to me the worst because I didn't want to seem crazy to those around me. Mm. That's really moving that you could adjust to living with these really challenging sort of intrusions, but it was the the perception of you and the idea of what people might think of you that was actually the hardest thing. Yeah. Some people find it very difficult to distinguish between their actual thoughts and their actual reality from psychotic symptoms. Is that something that you experienced when you first started living with them? Sometimes, yes. Uh, there was, I'm thinking about one experience in particular when I was still in college and I kept having this recurring hallucination of women screaming for help outside of my dorm room. And I kept hearing this would happen at night and I would hear women screaming for help and I would hear them running. I could hear their footfalls outside my bedroom door. And it was so realistic to me that I actually called the police twice because I thought there were people who needed help. And it was actually after the second time 
I called my mother and she said, stop calling the police. Um, she, I think, knew that there was something wrong with me. I hadn't gotten my diagnosis at that point, but I had gotten diagnoses of other sorts. I'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and she knew, I think, that there was something going on with my brain and felt that I really did not need to call the police again. Um, the police actually did come those other times and they went and looked around to see if there was anyone who needed help. And I had summoned them because I really did hear those things. And that is the amazing thing about hallucinations is they do kidnap the senses. You do hear them um, as though there were something stimulating the ear um, or you know, something stimulating the eye um, in the way that uh, an actual thing in the world. Mm. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it like that as if um, the idea that it feels like something is actually stimulating the ear rather than it being a thought from your subconscious. That's, mm. that's really interesting. I'm sure one of the first questions you get from people is, is what is it like to live with schizoaffective disorder, which is essentially what we've been doing since we've started chatting. Why do you think that question comes first? I think because unlike something like depression, psychosis is something that people can't imagine quite as well. Um, with depression, people can think, oh, it's like being really, really, really sad. And then they just think about a time when they were sad, and then they just multiply that by like 100. Um, but there's not some, an equivalent experience to psychosis where they can think about what, an experience they've had and then extrapolate that to, to psychosis. Mm -hmm. And do you think those questions are sort of merited? Do you find them uncomfortable or invasive at all? Or perhaps are they important to re for, for reducing stigma? Um, I think that they are appropriate under certain circumstances. I've placed myself in a position where it, it, they are somewhat merited. I've written a book about them. I have agreed to do things like this podcast. Um, and so I, you know, I'm a person... Uh, who talks about this kind of stuff in public. I think that it's less appropriate if you are a person in the world who does not make themselves available to answer these kinds of questions. And I think that's the case about most things. And, you know, I, I also feel like it might not be okay to ask me about these things if we're, say, at a party and I'm trying to enjoy myself. I mean, you know, that is assuming we ever have parties again, but, um, uh, you know, we're having a conversation about these things right now. And so that's, that's appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I think goes for all chronic health conditions. There's a time and a place. I think in my experience, if people ask these questions sensitively and in a nice way, basically, then I'm happy to answer them. But I know, I understand there's a specific stigma also that comes with questions around your mental health because it feels like perhaps with something like schizoaffective disorder, people might make more judgments about what that means about your identity. Is that is that something you've encountered? I think there is a sort of hierarchy among mental health disorders. 
there's a stigma attached to most mental health disorders in general, but schizophrenia is one that has quite a lot of stigma attached to it. I've seen people uh, who are very educated and would seem like they would know better um, ask me or say pretty offensive things to me um, when they know that I am a guest of honor at a literary function or something. And so it's just part of the deal. And, and that's another thing that people ask me is, I have such and such a disorder. Should I disclose? Um, should I tell other people? I want to tell other people, but I'm afraid of what they'll think of me. And it's a it's a difficult question to answer because I don't really have a simple answer for them. I don't really have, um, I can't really tell them how it will turn out for them. I can't say your boss is going to respond really well and everything will go really great at your company. I can't promise them that they won't lose their job um, under the guise of something else. Um, mm. Disclosure is not an easy thing to do. And are there sort of heavier consequences to disclosure for someone who does have live with one of these mental health disorders? For example, if someone reacted badly or if someone said something really offensive to you, is that likely to be damaging for your mental health and the way that you manage your condition, for example? My sensitivities and the difficulties that I live with in terms of how I respond to people saying mean things or people being insulting are rather minor in comparison to people who live with the schizophrenias and are shot by the police, for example, which is something that happens a lot in America, particularly to Black people who have schizophrenia and have the police called on them because there's no great education in terms of how to deal with them. I actually was taking part in session that Starbucks was doing and they were talking to me about how they were trying to educate employees to better deal with people who are clearly dealing with mental health issues in terms of how to not immediately call 911 when somebody is being disruptive in a store, what resources to call. But we could all in America in particular have better resources to deal with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it is in the UK. We here could really use a lot of better resources. Yeah, I mean, even with the NHS and the free healthcare that we have over here, the conversation and treatments around mental health are, are lagging way, way, way behind mm -hmm. kind of our conversations around physical health. And I think it's not the same context as the US, but but definitely it's a problem over here as well. I know we touched on earlier how people find it perhaps easier to put themselves in the shoes of, of someone who's gone through depression and kind of sympathise with what it might be like. It feels like the conversation around mental health conditions like anxiety and depression has moved on a great deal in the past sort of few years. We are talking a lot more about mental health first aid, as you touched on there, or how we can look out for people that might be suffering with um, poor mental health. Do you think the schizophrenias have been left behind there? Yes, very much so. And I think that's sadly the case just because there aren't that many people who are asked to speak about it in public, um, which is why I'm so grateful to be given this chance and this platform to be able to talk with you for this podcast. 
I mean, I think it's just really helpful to be even be able to say this is what a delusion is like. Do you mind if I just describe a de- what a delusion might no, be like? No, not, not at all. Um, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So for me, when I was experiencing a pretty lengthy delusion back in 2014, my sister-in-law actually came over and she was helping to sit with me, which was something that I needed very badly at the time. And she actually asked me, what is it like to have a delusion, which is something that nobody had ever asked me before. And I thought about it and I said, it would be like if everybody told me that the sky was purple and I looked outside and the sky was blue and everybody insisted that the sky was purple. And no matter how many people I asked, they said the sky was purple. And no matter how many times I looked outside, the sky was blue. And at some point, I would just either give up and agree with them and just say, okay, I guess the sky is blue, um, despite how I actually saw it. Or I would try to adjust my viewpoint. And, and, and that's the thing with having a delusion is that you really truly believe the thing that you believe. It's a belief. Um, and a belief is a very fundamental thing. And so when everybody else is telling you something else, and when they bring you to doctors, and the doctors are trying to get you to believe this other thing, you you might go along with them because you're your loved ones love you and these doctors tell you your your beliefs are wrong but deep down you really believe this other thing and and so it is very difficult for everyone involved mm. and i can imagine that must really erode your trust in the people around you if you really strongly believe one thing and everyone is saying no that's not the case has that been in your experience mm-hmm. i mean it erodes your trust in the people around you, it erodes your trust in yourself, especially because a lot of delusions tend to often be antithetical to your feelings about your loved ones, period. So I would, for example, have delusions about my husband putting poison in my tea. And so that would be a belief that would erode my trust in my husband. All of these things were very difficult and, um, can be very difficult. And in that scenario, for example, because illness doesn't exist in a vacuum, we also are living our day-to-day lives, having our normal interactions with the people we live with and things like that. How did you and your husband deal with that? It was really difficult. I was also for a long time holding down a full-time job when I was experiencing psychosis. And so a lot of the time, I just learned to keep my delusions and hallucinations to myself because I had to work and I had to keep doing my job. At some point, it got to the level where I couldn't continue to work anymore and I ended up doing long-term disability and then I quit my job. But yeah, I think in terms of uh, just living with my husband and being with my loved ones, a lot of it was just getting by from day to day, trying to work with my doctors, trying to get through moment to moment, hour to hour. The practicalities of dealing with delusions are really difficult, but there's not too much you can do with a belief that won't budge. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the sort of practicalities in the day-to-day. What are some of those? I've been journaling every day for the last few years. And 
in 2014, which is probably not coincidentally, I started figuring out this thing called restorative journaling, which is this technique of journaling that I invented that wasn't just rambling in my journal or writing down what I did every day. It was a kind of journaling that felt more like it was actually doing something. And so I started developing these skills of journaling in a particular way because there are important things like talking to my therapist or taking medication, but there are also all the minutes and all the seconds in between. People talk about how therapy is important, but therapy is only 50 minutes every week. Or, you know, if you're going to therapy twice a week, that's a hundred minutes every week, or, you know, there's only so much therapy you can have. And so I've tried to figure out what I can do in between. And um, that's been kind of the big challenge of the last few years of my life. It's a whole sort of holistic joined up approach Mm -hmm. to managing living alongside this condition, because you know that it's something you're going to live with forever Mm -hmm. and to live well alongside it. There's things you can do to help yourself. Would you say that when those pillars of self-care drop off, are those some triggers for sort of bad episodes for you? Or are there specific things that can happen? Or is it or is it random? Can you sort of fall into a, a bad episode? Oh, totally, totally both. There are times when I can have an episode and my psychiatrist will ask me if any stressors have occurred in my life and I always find that question very frustrating because who doesn't have stressors in their life, right? You know, stressors are in our lives all the time. I also can look at my life and point to times when very specific stressors have caused poor mental health. So both, yeah, both and either. Have you got to a point now where you're able to recognize some of your sort of tells signs that things might be heading south and that you need to do something about it? Yes, that's a really good question. Um, I've lived with so many diagnoses over my life that I've gotten to know my tells for a number of different conditions. So when mania and depression were much bigger concerns in my life, I got to know my tells for that. Lack of sleep was a huge tell for that. Um, With psychosis, seeing images moving is a big tell. Thinking that people are doubles is a big tell. It's interesting because over the years, I learned that I have certain delusions that are more likely to happen than others. Like I've never... Knock on wood. I I keep feeling like I need to knock on wood all the time. Um, I've never believed that I was Jesus or anything like that, but I frequently, or not as much anymore, but I used to frequently have the delusion that my loved ones were replaced by doubles or robots. That was a really common delusion of mine. And that's really interesting to me. But from research that I did for my book, I learned that that is associated with a very specific area of the brain, which is also related to another delusion that I had, Qatar's delusion, which is the delusion where one believes that one is dead. So it was very interesting to me, um, the whole 
the whole situation with uh, different areas of the brain and why certain delusions might happen over and over again. Wow, that is interesting. When you're having some of these tells or when you're starting to exhibit signs of poor mental health, are your network now also clued into that? Some people are better at knowing my tells than others. I have one friend who is very good at knowing my tells, even though he lives in another state. He will tell me that he is concerned about me. My therapist is very good at knowing my tells and will mention to me that she thinks I need to talk to my doctor. Yeah. So I want to get onto the stigma because I, I know we've touched on it a little bit, but as you mentioned, there's a huge stigma around the way we think about psychotic conditions and anything involving hearing voices, having delusions or visions, any of the many symptoms that you can experience with a psychotic condition have a pretty bad representation, I suppose. What are some of the representations that you've found the most damaging and untrue? The one that I find the most frustrating is that people with some form of the schizophrenias or some psychotic disorder are violent. People with mental illness are much more likely to have violence committed against them rather than to commit violence themselves. It's really sad and horrifying every time some kind of violent act appears in the news. And I always hold my breath because I wonder if it's going to come up that that person was, say, taking Zoloft. This is something that I think about often. And it is a, a big form of stigma to have some form of the schizophrenia, as I talk about in my book. I once saw a meme on Facebook about how different forms of mental illness can bestow upon us many gifts, and depression can make us be sensitive, and anxiety can allow us to be more on top of things, etc. But I knew that schizophrenia would not be listed in this meme, and I was right. And so... I continue to want to do interviews like this one and talk to people so that people can see how people with these kinds of diagnoses are capable of so much and are human and wonderful and like watching corny reality shows and, and <laughs> things like that too. Yeah, I think what you say, you know, these people are human and wonderful. There is there is this like dehumanizing sort of narrative, I suppose, when we talk about psychosis, like the taboo of hearing that someone hears voices. Where do you think that comes from? Is it a sort of lack of awareness? And yeah. if so, can we change that? So there's an essay in my book called Toward a Pathology of the Possessed. And I think that... That essay kind of speaks to what you're talking about, which is that the schizophrenias are very closely linked to the metaphor of possession or the idea of possession. There's this idea that if a person has a psychotic disorder, that they've been hollowed out and the person within is no longer there. It's kind of like the way we think about Alzheimer's disease. The person is gone. We loved them once, but now they're no longer there. 
in the in the concept of schizophrenia it's more like you know bob or susan or whoever we loved them they were so smart they were so promising but then they were hollowed out and now there's this horrible demonic person inside of them who is so unpredictable and um, is unrecognizable as the person we once loved this idea of possession even if it's not directly spoken of or even if the word possession is not used um it's it's kind of inherently there it's kind of there under the surface and it's it's a very deeply set idea i think when we talk about psychosis there's also a certain view that psychotic symptoms are signs of supernatural power especially in terms of creativity so you've got two polarized images of the condition, one that's rooted very much rooted in fear and the other that's rooted in being completely superhuman. Do you think either of those are helpful? <laughs> no, I do not think either of them are helpful. Um, you know, when you think about being super superhuman, you think about like the TV show Legion, which is about, you know, are they a superhero or are they just schizophrenic? My mother was the one who first brought up the idea to me that in Chinese culture or in Taiwanese culture, there is the idea that fortune tellers or people who are involved in the mystical believe that psychosis is a gift and that there might be um, abilities that are bestowed upon people who have these kinds of conditions. And so I decided to explore that path and I kind of wandered into those woods and I took some classes and I started to become involved in that world. And, you know, in some ways it was helpful. Um, it was helpful to, to think of it, um, not necessarily because I uh, suddenly became able to do superhumanly cool things, but just because it was nice to be able to think of myself as being gifted as opposed to being cursed. And I think that mentality is, is healthier. Mm, that it's something that adds to you and your life experience rather than takes away. Mm -hmm. So we spoke a little bit earlier about, about your mum and her having an instinct that, that something was wrong. Your parents are Taiwanese. What are some of the thoughts that they have had about your condition over the years? They were not very understanding when I was first thought to have some kind of mental health issue. My mother in particular, who was more involved in my life when I was younger, uh, my father was less involved in my life. Um, she was very upset. She said that she couldn't believe that I was doing this to her. She felt that I was, um, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of sums it up. She felt that I was doing it to her. She felt that, you know, I had a roof over my head and food to eat and anything that I needed in terms of mental health, um, support was, asking too much. And so she got very angry and we struggled a lot for years. And I was really having a hard time with my mental health and with our relationship. And a lot of that was cultural. Uh, there were members of my extended family who had mental health issues, including a great aunt who ended up dying in an asylum and a cousin who had killed himself. And 
in the end, it turned out that my mother was just afraid and she was afraid that I would turn out like those people and she didn't know what to do. And she lied to my first psychiatrist and said that we had no history of mental health issues. And she told me later when I asked her why she had said that, that it was none of his business. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of those issues and a lot of how she dealt with that was cultural. And, um, and I don't blame her now. It's, it is hard. It is hard to raise children. It is hard to raise children in a new country. Yeah. That's so powerful though. It really speaks to the, the weight of the shame and stigma of mental health conditions, because if I'm sure if, if you had heart disease and the doctor had asked, do you have any history of heart problems in the family? You know, I, I can't imagine that would be greeted with the same, you know, that's none of his business. Um, yes. How have you personally dealt with the shame attached to the condition? Personally, I, uh, I lean a lot on the things that I do well. I think that um, it might not be the healthiest impulse, but I, I focus a lot on the things that I like to do and the things that I uh, am able to do and get recognition for. Um, I care a lot about my, uh, about my writing. I care a lot about um, how I care for other people. I care a lot about how I can support my community and the communities that I care about, the people that I love, um, my friends, my family. Um, yeah, so those are the things that I think about. I think about how I can best be a person and, um, and that helps me a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you briefly mentioned that your aunt had been institutionalized. I know that's something that you've also been through, I think three times. Mm -hmm. How have you dealt with that loss of agency when that happens? And, and how do you protect that sense of identity that you were just talking about um, and nurture your self-esteem within that situation? I would have to say that being involuntarily hospitalized was some of the most traumatic um, things uh, to go through in my life. And I've been through some traumatic things. So in order to keep my sense of agency and sense of self in those situations, which is not easy because they do everything to take that away from you. Or, I mean, I, I feel like I, I'm sounding incredibly against hospitalization, which I, I actually have quite mixed feelings about hospitalization, and I think that it can be good for some situations. But in the hospital, I, I did cling to writing. I was able to acquire a notebook and a pen in pretty much every hospital that I was in. They do let you have that if a nurse or somebody like that, no, usually a nurse can watch you, and if it's not a spiral-bound notebook, you know, in the most recent hospitalization, I received the nickname Lois Lane from the other hospital hospitalized people because they thought I was an undercover reporter. And to be able to write gave me a sense of myself and reminded me of who I was outside of the hospital. Hmm. 
And you mentioned the other people that were hospitalised there at the same time. When you're hospitalised like that, is there a sense of distrust of the other people around you or um, have you had an experience where you've been able to make friends? What is that like? It depends. Uh, the first time I was... No, the second time I was hospitalised, I... I arrived and found that one of my friends was already in there so that we already knew one another. But for the most part, I think, uh, at least for me, so much of it is about thinking about why am I here? How do I get out? Um, There's a lot of, for me, thinking about oneself and thinking about trying to figure out your own business and there's not so much uh, socialization although they do try to encourage that yeah it's not like a holiday camp yeah yeah you're there yeah. to get better yeah so I really want to get into your journey with the label of of psychosis and schizoaffective disorder ultimately I think the way you talk about it is that you found it helpful to to be able to say that you have this diagnosis have you found that to be to be common? Are there others who reject it? And if so, why? As with anything, there are people who accept it and there are people who reject it. Um, there are people are different. People. I personally like to have a label. I like to know that I'm not pioneering an inexplicable experience. I like to know that I am going through something that thousands, if not millions of people have gone through before me. And that is something that lots of people are going through right now. I like to know that I'm not alone. And I like to know that it's something that can be found in a book that you can point to and say, this is what I'm going through. I think that people who are chronically ill tend to agree with, at least I found that in the chronic illness community. When we've talked about mysterious chronic illness in general, um, usually when um, one of us receives a diagnosis, um, other chronically ill people will say, congratulations. And people who don't deal with chronic illness will say, oh, I'm so sorry. It's just really nice to know what's wrong with you. Um, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I think there's nothing worse than being told you're a medical conundrum or we don't know what's wrong with you or you're dealing with something very rare here that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. You want there to be a blueprint for treatment and mm-hmm. and what that looks like. Yeah. The classification for schizophrenia and, and those related conditions still uses certain concepts that were developed in the 1800s well, which feels extremely outdated to me and and quite worrying. (laughs) To what extent has the way medicine thinks about psychotic conditions changed over time? It's funny how a lot of these things have and haven't changed. When it comes down to it, all of these diagnoses are man-made or human-made to begin with. There are things that humans came up with to try and make sense of these very fuzzy ideas um, so that we could try and treat them. When it all comes down to it, they don't actually mean that much. I mean, it's not, especially with psychiatry, it's not like we can take a blood test and it will tell you what diagnosis you have. It's, you look at a grouping of symptoms and 
I mean, I learned a lot of this when I was working at Mood and Anxiety Disorders Lab at Stanford. I learned how thin the line could be between diagnosis and the lack of a diagnosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how big a part of you does your condition feel? How much schizoaffective disorder do you think of when you think of your identity? Um, that's a really good question. And I, I think it really varies. Um, at some points, it's felt like pretty much all of me. Um, and I think that's when I'm very sick. And it, it's just all I can think about. Um, there was once a quote that I read a really long time ago before I was ever really sick. And it was something like, you know, you're healthy when you never really think about how your body feels. Um, And I I feel like that has applied so much to my journey with illness, um, both physical and mental illness. Um, Because when I am really dealing with my chronic illness, my physical chronic illness, um, I'm thinking about my body all the time. Like every second of the day, I'm thinking about my body and how it feels and how it hurts and how it's too hot or cold or, you know, how I am hurting in this or that way or, or whatever. Or, you know, if I'm, if I'm dealing with mental health issues, I'm thinking about how I'm struggling so deeply and how I don't want to be alive and how I, you know, I'm seeing this or that hallucination or whatever. And, and I'm thinking about how I'm thinking or how I'm feeling. And, and so, so much of my experience and how I experience myself. Um, so what you're asking, like how much of you is this thing has to do with how much I'm dealing with it. And that varies from day to day. So yeah, that varies from day to day. So it can be quite all or nothing. Um, yeah, I think so. Or, but there are also percentages, I think. All or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I can imagine finding the right treatment option can take some time. Um, you mentioned that you take a finely tuned balance of drugs. Some antipsychotics can have some very serious health implications, can't they? Yes. For example, one medication that I tried is an incredibly difficult drug. And uh, if you take it, you have to enter a registry, a national registry, and you have to get your blood taken every week. And it was actually taken off the market for a while because it can cause a quick dip in your white blood cell count and it can be fatal. Uh, For me, I could only get it from one pharmacy in the city where I live. And when I took it, it would cause this kind of paralysis when I woke up in the middle of the night, but it would also cause a lot of saliva production. So I would wake up choking on my own saliva in the middle of the night, but I also couldn't move. So I almost died. And to make matters worse, it actually didn't help with the psychosis at all. So it's a very intense medication, but it's also known as, you know, if you've tried all the other ones, like, and they don't work for you, try this one and hopefully it'll work for you. And if that doesn't work, then you should either do shock therapy or ECT or there's nothing that can be done. 
the medications do have really difficult side effects. An entire class of medications still have target dyskinesia as one of the major side effects, which is what causes the kind of frozen and jerking motions that people associate with schizophrenia. That's not from schizophrenia. That's from the medication. And if you start taking the medication and you start having that side effect, it doesn't go away even if you stop taking the medication. So it's a tough hang. So yeah. Mm. Mm. You you just mentioned shock therapy as well, which I was not expecting to hear. Are people still using that? Oh, yes, completely. I was on the wait list for that when I was experiencing um, this serious delusion back in 2014. I was told to read this book before I went in for my ECT. It's known as electroconvulsive therapy, not really shock therapy. And I read it and actually I learned that it's most helpful for um, intractable depression and schizophrenia with hallucinations. And that wasn't my situation. So I, I was actually told that it was not, it was probably not going to be that helpful for me. Um, and it can possibly have really difficult and sad side effects involving one's memory um, and one's ability to form memories and people can lose memories as well. So, but people who, people who are going for these treatments are very desperate they are really really suffering and so um yeah yeah I was gonna say I suppose it speaks to the desperation of trying to find something that works that was very enlightening thank you um we didn't mention earlier but you also live with late stage Lyme disease you were diagnosed in 2015 I believe mm -hmm. living alongside a physical condition of some sort and a diagnosed mental health condition do you think that the way that we talk about mental and physical health as being two very polarized things needs to change? Yes. Um, when I went and saw a neurologist for the first time, one of the first things she said to me was, all mental illnesses are going to be linked to autoimmune disorders at some point. We just aren't there yet because there are some links to autoimmune disorders that are being made now. And that's very much the cutting edge of a lot of research. But in terms of mental and physical health, another book that I'm thinking of right now is one by Amy Berkowitz called Tender Points. And it's about her mental health issues and her diagnosis of fibromyalgia and trauma. And I very much feel like trauma is a link in a lot of cases between mental health issues and physical health issues. I feel like there's so much more to be explored there. Mm. So we spoke about your sort of early experiences leading up to your diagnosis and some of the symptoms that you experienced then. Now that you've lived with this diagnosis for a good few years, what do your psychotic interludes look like now and how often do they arrive? So I have been quite stabilized, knock on wood, um, on a lot of medications. Um, and I am very fortunate in that regard. I took all of the atypical antipsychotics available and I found 
some medications, including some old ones that most people don't take that work for me. And so even though I have experienced some hallucinations and I have experienced some delusions, especially during this year with the pandemic and the stressors of that, which have been difficult and have kind of twigged some of my symptoms, especially the more PTSD-related symptoms. I am lucky in that they're usually fairly transient and I can bump up my medication and I'm usually okay for the most part. So I'm pretty stable in terms of my psychotic symptoms in regards to my other mental health symptoms and my other chronic illness symptoms, those may be a little shakier, but um, in terms of psychotic symptoms, I'm, I'm doing relatively okay, which is great. Mm, that's great to hear. And yeah, I'm not surprised to hear about the impact of the pandemic on, on that, the stability of those things. Um, so we're coming to an end. I know we've been chatting for ages, but to round off, I just want to ask you two last questions. Firstly, what do you wish people knew about living with schizoaffective disorder? I wish that people knew the experience, the lived experience, and didn't turn as much to books written by exper- so-called experts or loved ones who live with people who live with it or whatever. Mm, that's such an important point for the ownership of these conditions to go back to the people who live with them and finally something that we ask all of our guests what does living well mean to you now for me living well is having kind of ownership over um this community that i've built called the unexpected shape community and it's i've been building it for years ever since i left my job but it began with this idea of the unexpected shape which is this idea that life is something that we don't know how it's going to turn out we might want it to be a certain way it has limitations in a way that might not be um desirable Living well to me is coming to terms with the idea that those boundaries of that unexpected shape of a life, those boundaries are actually okay. My friend describes it as the way a baseball diamond works. Like you might want to go from, I'm sorry, uh, you I guess in the UK that you don't play baseball. No, that's okay. But, um, I think people have okay. own awareness. Okay. Yeah. So like in baseball, you don't just run from like first base to third base to home or, or whatever, even though you might want to. And even though that might be an easier way to win, there's like a given way you have to run the bases just because that's the way the game is played. That's the point. And I think life is like that too. And I think given the boundaries that I have in my life, the fact that I have only a certain amount of energy per day, the fact that like a certain amount of stress makes me have panic attacks or that a certain amount of a certain amount of stress might make me have hallucinations. um, Those are just the boundaries that I live with. And that's the shape that I live my life within. Yeah. And that's what living well means to me. 
Thank you, Esme. That's really enlightening. Um, I know you mentioned earlier just how helpful restorative journaling has been for you and your condition. Mm -hmm. You're now hoping to bring that to other people because you're running a course called Rawness of Remembering. Yes, it's on a really beautifully designed website and people can go through the modules which have all of the lessons inside and you can just learn all of these things that I've taught myself about restorative journaling. I think we can all use some of that right now. It's normally $147, but it's $57 right now. And you can get that discount by using the code BY2020 in all caps. In all caps, BY2020, B-Y-E-2020. And the URL is esmewang.com slash rawness. Amazing. Just in time because the Christmas period can be so stressful for so many people. So that sounds really great, Esme. Thank you. Thank you. What an absolutely brilliant conversation. And I've learned so much and definitely will be reading more of your work. Yeah, I love that. To continue informing myself about um, the schizophrenia. So thank you so much for starting that really important thank awareness so in me. Much. Thank you. A huge thanks again to Esme. If you want to learn more about her and her books, you can find her on esmewang.com. For UK-based mental health advice and support, you can find some really useful websites and helpline numbers in the description of this episode. So next week is going to be our last episode of this season, and we're going out with a bang, so you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to finally be diving into endometriosis with an all-star panel of experts who live with the condition. It's going to be a good one, so tune in on the 30th. In the meantime, wishing you a very happy Christmas, whatever that might look like this year. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.